Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, brought to you from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Can death bring something good to life? Clover Stroud is a writer and journalist whose book, The Red of My Blood, documents the year following her sister Nell's death from breast cancer, aged just 46. Clover's book is fearless, humane and profoundly moving, a major contribution to the literature of grief and bereavement. She spoke earlier this year to Hannah McInnes. Knowing that you're someone who writes about how life makes you feel, but faced with this most enormous barrage of feelings, I wonder when you decided that you were going to be able to write about this, or and why, I suppose. Yeah, well, it was actually in the very last moments of Nell's life, really. She died very suddenly. She'd had breast cancer since 2015, but she'd been given quite a good prognosis, actually. The, she had secondary cancer, but her oncologist was quite confident that he could keep it at bay. And then she died very, very suddenly. So that 10 days before she died, she was given a few more years, certainly, to live. And then suddenly we were told that she had a day. And it was in the kind of those last hours and then the immediate aftermath that I was, I was desperate. I was totally desperate. And I thought I've got to read I've you know I don't know how I'm going to survive this and I need something to help me navigate it I need to read other people's experiences and I need to understand more about other people's experiences and you know there are obvious texts to turn to at that point like the year of magical thinking is the one that everybody you know Joan Didion C.S. Lewis but I'd actually already read those when my mum died in 2013 And I read quite a lot of poetry, but I couldn't find what I really, really wanted to read, which was about a kind of a sort of bird's eye view, like a a, a report of, of grief, I suppose, and the extraordinary place that it takes us to. And I was so aware of this kind of strange breaking open of of my life and I felt utterly devastated and I also felt utterly alive at the same time. And I'd been working on something else for a few months, but that seemed completely irrelevant and sort of fell away. And it was about two months after Nell's death that I started thinking, I I need to record this and I need to understand it more clearly. And in order to do that, I need to write about it. And I didn't actually start writing the book until Nell died in December 2019. And I started writing it in, in the summer. And I was very sitting down to to start it at the 
you know, it was a very nerve wracking moment. And I had this really extraordinary start, really, having thought about it for for six months. And I was trying to work out how do I communicate? Should it be like a, you know, a kind of diary or should it be a series of chapters about different rites of, you know, the sort of rites of passage of grief of planning a funeral or going through the deceased's clothes and 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 then I just could sort of see a shape this shape came to me which was the shape of a quest because I was very interested by Middle English and Anglo-Saxon poetry and I could see this these this sort of shape of these knights of courtly knights of Arthur's knights who who go out on a quest looking for something looking for meaning really and that's what I felt like I was doing and I and I started it over a sort of a course of a few really, really hot days, staying in a house that, that had belonged to a friend of Nell's that she had really loved. It was a big house and they were actually doing it up so there was nobody else staying there. And it was intensely hot and I was on my own, which is, and it's quite a spooky experience to stay in a big house on your own. And I was there and I could, I just felt as though she was conjured up to me. I was conjuring her up, but she was sort of conjuring herself up in some way or another. And I wrote that first chapter, which kind of sets up the tone of the book, which is quest-like and quite surreal. And I mean, I'm pleased by the poetry of the writings. I felt like I took my writing to a further place than I'd been in the previous books. Mm -hmm. So it was quite, you know, it was quite quick that I started writing it. And it was because I, I kind of wrote the book that I wanted to read as well, if that doesn't sound arrogant but I was it was the book that I was sort of looking for that describes in a very immediate and very physical and also very relatable it's it's not a complicated book Mm -hmm. um way about what happens to you in those in that first year it is very very poetic and I think that's what's um so enchanting and sort of immersive about it that way it carries you through you said um that a lot of it was was painful there are days you say writing about these days is very difficult there's one time you say for a few weeks in late January this is what my life felt like and it's just a blank but in that sort of exploring it as you've just mentioned was there a sense in which there was a catharsis like a healing from the writing from from getting it out into the page I'm not sure about catharsis. I'm always really, really interested by catharsis because I I always write about difficult... I mean, being a human being is difficult and painful, isn't it? And I write about being a human being, whether it's... My first book is a lot of that is about trauma. My mum had this terrible accident. The second book is about motherhood, and motherhood is a very, very painful experience and melancholic experience. And I think it's more than catharsis. I think it's kind of exhilaration I found it really really exhilarating and in order to describe an emotion as I do I also need to re-feel it and when I write I have to kind of trigger myself and I'm I'm interested by this as well you can't I mean sometimes I can just sit down and it comes out and sometimes I need to go you know I've been dropping my kids at school or doing you know doing normal life doing the washing up and then I'm gonna go sit down and write about how I'm feeling in the aftermath of my sister's death. And I use poetry and I use music quite often to try and get into that place as well. Or sometimes looking at, I mean, looking at photographs and listening to music at the same time is, can be an incredibly emotional experience. So I don't know if it's, catharsis always suggests that it's kind of processed and dealt with and 
you know there's a kind of psychological healing that goes on I think there was there was healing but it was more in the kind of joy the joy of the creation I suppose and it was exhilarating as I was writing it I did feel this is powerful I could I could feel the power in my writing and sometimes as a writer you know you're sitting there worrying is this good enough this is so you know this is must be so boring for somebody else to be reading these details of my life but in writing this book I felt as though I was kind of touching something quite otherworldly I mean I did I did and that's why I really enjoyed as well creatively exactly using blank pages to describe things or using different size font or different types of font I use sometimes for some phrases of words that Nell and I said to each other I use I put it into its own kind of special font to try and communicate to the reader these different states of being I suppose mm-hmm. so it was very very useful it was a very profound and exciting experience writing it but it was also very very painful and sometimes I long to be back in the space of writing it actually as well it's so interesting you say that and you use the word vivid and and people who haven't read it might might be surprised by some of that language you know vivid and exciting and you know it's called the red of my blood it's a bright book all the way through you you describe feelings and sensations that might otherwise be associated with dark and gray and black with you know you talk of the bright colors of trauma the petrol um, blue wings of death you know, there's an orange reference to an orange furnace. And at one point uh, inside me was a fizzy mess of furious colliding colors that was always on the point of giving me a, a migraine. Death could turn life inside out about with bright colors. I just wonder if you could articulate that, that feeling where kind of the color is the predominant sensation, um, you know, not dark and gray and, and, and black. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's so interesting that, and I think that we think of, mourning and grief as something black and dark and shaded and muted and muffled and it is there are moments of that there are moments of complete blackness but I did also have this sense of and you know many other people it's magical thinking isn't it you know the 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 awakening of something the other place that you go into um and there are different cultures that believe that the you know the grieving person is capable of communicating with the spirit world and you are in a separate place to the rest of society and the rest of you know the kind of people around you and you are slightly unhinged and slightly mad in some way in the same way I mean I've had five children so I've experienced the post-birth period lots of times and the kind of disturbing it's very disturbing having a baby it turns you completely inside out that's what this my second book was about and being present with death inevitably has the same kind of experience it is it is unhinging and it should be unhinging because it's the most solemn and serious thing that can happen and yet with it there comes this sense of opportunity or a kind of opportunity if you want there to be an opportunity it's a very hard opportunity to go towards and to take because you want to you want to reach backwards into the past you know I was desperate especially in the immediate weeks and months after Nell's death I was just desperate it to go backwards and to, to you know to be back with her where I had been because it was close enough so I felt as though if I really leant forward I could kind of still touch her you know her fingertips kind of thing and yet you are due to this other you know the other state that you're in there is a feeling of a sort of 
I mean, I think about like breaking a beautiful plate or a beautiful piece of glass and there's the sadness of that. But then there's also a kind of strange beauty in the broken pieces of china or the broken pieces of glass. And I think that that's where the kind of sense of the colour comes from. And I really I mean, I sort of sometimes miss the feeling of the colour now. And and maybe it's also I mean, it, it may be I'm not a scientist. I don't know. It may be that there is a kind of physical scientific explanation for it to do with your brain or the way you're processing something or exhaustion because it's also absolutely exhausting but there's a I think that you can become more attuned to that sense of the wonder and the awe of it and I think that that's what I was really really searching for in the writing was a way to communicate that this was a dark place that I'd got to but in the darkness there's a kind of privilege of knowledge as well you're taken to a place that it is is not the place you're in every day at all it's a strange place it's a scary place but it's um you know it's deeply spiritual place it's a deeply extraordinary place and I think that's where that sense of the heightened heightened color comes from and is that also what you mean when you talk about you know the metaphysical uh you talk about that there was some comfort knowing I was living through metaphysics Well, it's so strange. I mean, dealing with grief is so strange and you feel as though you are on a different planet. And I remember in the days after my mum died in 2013 and I really felt as though, you know, when you see some footage of somebody walking on the moon or or you hear that kind of breathing through a pipe that's, um, or as if someone's breathing, the way that people are filmed breathing underwater and that breathing sound in your head. And I felt as though my feet were kind of flopping on a totally uneven landscape. And it isn't like the normal landscape of every day. And it doesn't, it doesn't last a whole year, I don't think, that kind of strange metaphysical world but it certainly lasts for several months and it's quite a scary place to be in it's not always a pleasant place to be in sometimes you want to I mean I wrote I wrote a lot as well about searching for my sister and then a few months after she died also feeling as I was completely obsessed by her as though she was absolutely around me all the time and I remember waking up in the morning and thinking oh I just don't want to be dealing with this kind of struggle that I have in my head of where is Nell and how do I communicate with her and where has she gone but the struggle was there it wasn't I couldn't really choose to be in it or out of it it absolutely was part of the grief that I was going through. And do you think that that was to do with the circumstances? I mean, in any circumstances, it's impossible to comprehend or to bear. But you talk at the beginning about the fact that she had been alive. These are your words. So very, very recently, we have not seen death coming for her, not at all. Does that, do you think, impact upon that feeling of searching for her? You spoke about the death of your mother, which um, you had seen coming but it makes it no easier to bear but does it make the process different in that searching yeah I I've thought a lot about that and I'm I'm not sure I think that when somebody dies in a timely way so mum was in her 70s and therefore there was a kind of natural order she had been I mean her life was strange because when she was in her early 50s she had a riding accident that left her profoundly brain damaged soon and she couldn't walk or talk or communicate or say my name for 22 years so I had been preparing for her death I'd been on the brink of her death and in many ways I had actually wanted her death for a long long period of time and yet when it came I still felt 
very, very shocked. And the feeling of, which I think is so familiar to people of like, where the hell have you gone? You were here and now you've gone. And, and now, I mean, it was just so strange with Nell because she'd been, she had been, she'd had, and I'm happy for her that it was like this. I'm happy that she didn't know that she was going to die, even though, you know, even she, even though she'd been ill for a long time, but she lived in, in that last autumn that she was alive. She was, she went off to Cuba with her boyfriend and she was buying horses and preparing things for her show. She was having a really lovely time. It was harder for us because there was no, there was no kind of preparation, but I wonder whether when somebody is, particularly when somebody's dying young, whether there is ever a feeling of, okay, I've had enough conversations. I've, I've, you know, I've said everything I want to say. I've said, I love you enough. And now I'm ready. I don't think you're probably ever ready. A friend of mine, her dad recently died in his eighties and she was saying, oh, he, he could have had like another 10 years. And I felt we were so lucky you've had him until his eight in, you know, into his eighties and, but she was wanting longer. Of course she was wanting longer. So I don't know whether, I don't know if we're ever, ever really, are we ever really ready to lose the people that we really love? Are we ever ready for it to have been the last conversation? I don't think so. No. And you, you talk about a lot, a lot, you know, with the things you wish you'd said, perhaps even though you knew um, your sister did not want to talk about those things. Mm. Do you still feel those kind of feelings of, of of wishing you had and wishing you'd said different things or do you sort of settle with yourself that you as you just said one always feels you, you wish you'd done something or said something I think do you mean I mean there are conversations that I wish there are specific conversations that I wish I'd had with Nell and which is part of the reason why this book feels important to me because I hope it might inspire other people to have these conversations exactly there's a moment in there where you say I wish I had because I I would encourage others to talk about these things with their children, for example. Yeah, I wish we'd talked about death more clearly and more often. I wish we'd talked about what we believed in or what we didn't believe in. I wish we'd talked about, I wish we'd joked about, you know, ways that we might communicate with each other. But by the time Nell had cancer from 2015 and she didn't really want I mean she clearly didn't want to talk about these things at all and it wasn't for me of course to force that conversation on her and so now I talk with my children a lot about and they're they're a variety of ages from five to 21 so you can have different levels of kind of interest and challenge in those conversations but Talking with a five-year-old about, and you know, the little ones are five, seven, and nine, you can have a really funny conversation about what is reincarnation? Do you believe in it? Who do you think you're going to come back as? Do you, you know, one of my sons wants to be a priest for a while. I mean, he's not, he's seven years old and he's quite eccentric, but he was really, really clear that he wanted to be a priest. He doesn't want to be a priest anymore. He wants to be a drag queen now. So he's moving through different ideas, but like you can have you know, conversations which are interesting and which are memorable and which, of course, they will, you know, I don't think you're ever going to be ready, as, as, as we say, but, but a kind of familiarity, a sense of understanding the language a bit more, understanding the places that you go to. It's scary territory to, to find yourself alone after the person that you love is dead. It is really scary. And it's not as though, you know, the book doesn't end with a kind of clear... I got through a year and then I was moving forward and I knew that she was 
she was there in the wind or in a rainbow or whatever. It doesn't do that at all because the path is complicated and it twists around. And sometimes, you know, you go right back to where you were, but like snakes and ladders, you go right back to where you were when you ha had thought that you were moving forward. But I think the more that we can talk about these things, the more we can kind of help each other. And it's so strange how death is still such a taboo. And I found it so interesting doing various events and talking to people of how much people want to talk about it. But for some people, it was, you know, like the first conversations they were really having about it. And it's um, the fact that there is still this sense of it's something that happens I don't know when we're older or out of sight or um, when we're ready, when we're prepared. And it doesn't happen like that. Obviously it happens all the time around us constantly. And I think the more, the more that we can talk to each other about it, the, the better for us as a society and individuals. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey... Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I wanted to talk to you and um, pick up on what you were talking about, the fact that it's the forest. You know, you never, you think it's, it's not easy. You don't just have a sort of light bulb moment and pop out the other side, of course. You're always a few steps back and lost again. But can I just ask you about that? That makes me think of something that comes up again and again in the book. It's we don't quite know how to talk about death. And there are moments in the book where you encounter people who um, infuriate you with the way that they try to console you. Um, or at one point, one wonders what she was thinking, if that was consolation. But perhaps that's why we find it hard to talk about death. We say the wrong things or, you know, we say the wrong things because we find it so hard. But is there ever the right thing to say, I suppose? Um, I do. Yeah, no, I do write about this. And I the thing I mean, one of the reasons that I wanted to write the book was because so many people said to me, well-meaning people, friends, loving, kind people said, I cannot begin to imagine what you're going through. And I just thought that's a real failure of imagination <laughs> because you know, try a bit harder to imagine what it's like. And when you say to somebody, I can't imagine what you're going through, you are you sort of putting them into a place on their own and you're saying you're in an, in an unimaginably horrible world 
that I'm not part of in a way. And I think that that's one of the things that's so hard about grieving is that you are on your own and you, and you feel you behave in quite an odd way and you feel other, you feel separate. And I think there is no perfect thing to say, obviously, but I think kind of extending a sense of connection to somebody or a sense of love or a sense of presence to somebody is a much better thing than to say than I can't imagine what you're going through. Or the other thing is that Anel and I used to actually talk about this because people used to say it to us about our mother, oh, I couldn't, you know, I could just couldn't live without my mother. I couldn't cope without my mother, which again is a really you know, I can't cope without my sister, but I don't have a ch- an option not to. So this is this is kind of not coping, and this is this is what it's like. And the feeling of, I think that there's somebody who's grieving doesn't want to feel pushed away. I think you know, I don't think. I mean, there may be times when you think I don't want to see anybody, but I think that extending friendship and extending presence and extending love is always welcome, really. And I also think talking about the person, it's really nice to talk about the person. And I think if somebody has died and you didn't know the person, to say to the bereaved, you know, if it's a friend of yours, say, who's lost their father or something, what was he like? You know, what did you enjoy doing together? Tell me a bit about him. I think to be given the opportunities to talk is quite valuable because I can't begin to imagine what you're going through sort of shuts everything down in a way. It's interesting you say that um, you you do want some people around you. And and one of the things that comes up when you're in the grieving process is COVID and the lockdown. It's not a big part of the book, but it's there very much. It's presence in lots of different ways. And in a sense, you know, you say it felt crowded in, in your room where you were trying to work out death and what it was about and suddenly everyone joined you mm-hmm. and you say, I felt crowded. I wonder if you could sort of explain what, how that felt. You sort of want to not push people away, but everybody sort of suddenly feels that they can kind of understand on a level that's very different. Nell died in December 2019 and then in, you know, by March 2020, we were all locked down and, and it was very, very odd the world changing completely and the world that she knew actually being a place that seemed to have been finished. And I felt as though, you know, especially you remember the beginning of the pandemic when it was so bizarre and we didn't know, you know, what the future held. Nobody knew what the future held. It was so, so odd. And I did feel as I was living on a different planet to the one that Nell and I inhabited together. And, and then in the late March, early April, there was an obsession with grief on social media. I mean, I really like Instagram and I spend quite a lot of time there and I like talking to people there. But there was an obsession with grief and everybody was talking about grief. And if they were talking about grief because they couldn't go to their favourite cafe and they felt a loss of freedom, I did feel, mm, no, <laughs> that's not the grief that I'm going through. You know, there are kind of gradations. There is a hierarchy. I do write about the hierarchy as well. But I, but I was also interested because people were talking continually about when are we going to get back to normal? And I it was helpful that because it made me realise really powerfully that there isn't a normal to go back to. There isn't a place to go back to. Maybe there is a normal to get to in the future, but you cannot go back. This has to be a kind of 
place of evolution. This has to be a place of change. And I think that that really inspired me in my writing, actually. It was like, well, where can I get to? I don't know where. This this landscape that I'm in, because of Nell's death and because of COVID, but more because of Nell's death, was so alien. And, and where where is it going to lead me to? And that's what I wanted. That's, you know, kind of when I started to think, well, maybe I could write a whole book about this, this idea of the landscape that I've got to cross. But, um, yeah, and I did feel, yeah, sometimes I felt slightly affronted that everyone was, well, everyone suddenly seemed to be a specialist in grief suddenly. And I kind of thought it was, my little thing that I was doing. Um, I was just thinking about that hierarchy of grief as well, which I think is quite important and people don't really like to talk about. And I I touch on it when a friend of mine, I didn't know her, but we have become friends whose son had died and he was killed in a really terrible accident a bit before Nell died. And she was his only child. And I remember just thinking, I'm in you know the loss of my sister is really profound but what she's going through is is of a higher level of pain you know it's a higher level of loss her only only child as an adolescent and she also sort of inspired me because I felt she was very courageous and she also was um quite positive she was very very upset but she was move. She was moving. You know, she was moving. She was moving forward in some way, and I think that that yeah, that sense of the of the hierarchy is quite important. And it's I guess it's important as well when you are grieving to be sensitive to other people, and and what you know when somebody says, "Oh my, a grandparent who's lived a very very long life has died." then it does feel different from somebody who's died, you know, Nell died in midlife and this this lovely boy died when he was 15. And there is a kind of, they're different experiences. As you said, there isn't a moment, this isn't a book where there's this sort of epiphanic one moment and then you and then you write exactly how, the, you know, the, the recipe for getting over grief. Of course not. It's a forest, you become, you sort of have moments of clarity and then you go back again. There's a, there's a moment, though, which does feel very profound and very uh, a moment where you actually have a swim in some very cold water. Mm. And it feels like a, a wonderful analogy for understanding that the pain can be productive, I suppose, um, mm. and, and can make things clearer and more vivid. I mean, you, you say at that time I was gaining a sense that you've referred to it all, that the death of my sister could possibly force me to create a life that was other than the one I had before, that could be brighter, stronger, bolder, and more colourful, more perilous, and also more vivid, even if the fact of feeling alive was the fact of feeling pain. And that's the sense you get in a few times in the book, that, as you say, this, this life that you're now having to, to lead without her mm. could be a different, but yet a more, more vivid and more lived life. I wonder if you could describe that, your your words more poetic than mine. Yeah, I mean, when, when somebody that you really, really love dies, then you have a life that you don't really want anymore. You have an existence that has got such a gaping sense of loss, such such a kind of sense of fracturing that you don't, you don't, this is not the life that, this isn't what, not what what I wanted, you know, and especially I did feel as well, 
when Nell was ill, I just remember saying to you, just one time we spoke about death, I said, you're going to stay alive because, you know, what had happened to our mother, I suppose, I've had, we, I did, I feel, I felt as though we had been through a lot and, and I had had a misguided thought when I was younger that, that mum's accent was so bad that that was the kind of bad bit of life and that was my quota of the traumatic, difficult stuff and then, Otherwise, I'd live a long and happy life with the people that I loved all around me. Obviously, life doesn't work like that at all. So you're left with this life that you don't you don't want this existence. And I felt so angry, and I and I I think I convey that fury, this kind of the wrongness of Nell's death. But you do have this opportunity, and I and I sometimes feel as though the kind of I had this sense of the quest challenge of these of these knights, and I love the images of the um, you know I was reading Gawain and the Green Knight and Arthurian poetry and Pearl and and those poems are so full of the images of life beyond an existence after the death of somebody that you love or an existence where you faced a really really massive challenge, and for me that was really useful to kind of create some kind of beautiful image in my head that I could strive towards I suppose and move towards and the fact of Nell's death is a ongoing bitter pill you know it's really hard it's really hard all the time now but I can I can choose to to create something with it with the time that I have and obviously none of us know how long we have that that in a way I can be proud of and that she might be proud of and I do sometimes think if I will see her again and sometimes I think I will and sometimes I think I won't but you sort of want to have a sense of if I do to be able to say this is what I did with the rest of my life and this is this is what I created and I sometimes feel that the kind of prizes of grief and death are like little brightly colored jewels all laid out on a and I've never seen this, I have to say, but like I imagine if you went to a really expensive jeweler and were like designing a ring or something and you had lots of colourful jewels put out on a navy blue piece of velvet. I feel as though the prizes of death are those like those little jewels and they're really hard to find. They're really, really, really hard won, but they are the kind of prizes of existence, of human existence. And that is an infinitely valuable thing you know and and the I think it has made me feel I mean I still feel annoyed and depressed and anxious and frustrated and bored and all of those things that I feel I feel as a human being but a kind of sense of awe the moments of awe and the the bit in the book that I really love was a bit where I described it was what a morning coming up to a year after Nell's death mm-hmm. and I was in in my house at home and these three and we live in the middle of the country but these three horses just walked in and it was a very misty day and they walked into my yard and then half an hour later you know a girl came running along and they'd broken the fence down because there wasn't enough food and she said there was an explanation for them it was a rational explanation but they were these black horses which were pretty beautiful and I guess and for me that was like death and life revealing itself as a kind of as an awe-inspiring and one's place. I chose to see those horses in that way. I could also have chosen to think, oh God, how annoying, we're now gonna be late for school. What are these horses doing just walking in and I've got to go and ring up the neighbors and find out how who they belong to. But I didn't, I chose to see it as a something incredibly beautiful. And I guess we have those opportunities, don't we? I mean, I, for me, it doesn't have to be 
horses walking into your yard there are those moments of beauty it could be a beautiful sky it could be a beautiful cold swim as you say it could be a particularly lovely cake that you've just made you know there are there are the opportunities it could be a beautiful poem there are, there are the opportunities if you want to find them and i'm interested in that way how therefore grief and a proximity and acquaintance with death can almost be like a creative moving forward from it can be a creative act if you want it to be um, and you see people transforming their lives don't you after the death of somebody they love and they, and they are anguished and they are kind of broken but people doing extraordinary things and that's a very it's very inspiring it's very inspiring about the human spirit our, our desire to to do that and to go on creating and living and being as you say, it's not that um, you, you you got to the end of your grief, not at all. But one thing it sounds like you have uh, overcome, and I'm interested to find out if that's true and how, is what's often the hardest part. You say, when I felt joy, I felt as if I was somehow betraying her. That feeling that to be happy, to find joy in those things was wrong. Mm. And, I want, and I'm sure many people would relate to that, to to the moment where you have a day that feels normal, back to some sort of normality, and then to feel guilty about that. And I wonder if you've got past that feeling of guilt. Yes, I definitely have. I definitely have. I definitely feel that, you know, more gratitude for what I have. I think it's really interesting, and possibly this is where the magical thinking is triggered as well in those early days, is that you can still feel, I mean, I remember going to see my dad and my stepmother a few days after Nella died to plan her funeral. And it's a horrific thing to be doing in many ways. But I remember ri- arriving at their house and and then laugh. we were really laughing about something. And you do find yourself suddenly, you know, even in the immediate aftermath of the death, having jokes or becoming hyster- you know hysterical giggles about something or I mean and I briefly talk about this like having sex the first time that somebody has after after somebody has died because it sort of feels wrong in some way that you're sort of you know searching for pleasure I suppose but of course that's those are the things that enable you to want to go on and want to want to you know go on creating and living and I definitely felt I definitely felt a lot of guilt for a long time and you feel guilt as well about, and I talked to her oncologist about this saying, I wish I'd gone to more appointments. I wish I'd seen her more. And he said like every single family of someone who's died says the same thing. It's part of the sort of grieving process because we can always do more. We can always be more present to one another. Yet we do, you know, we have lives that, that, that we have to live separately. So, yeah, I feel, I, I, I definitely do not feel guilty anymore for being alive, but I still, and I will always feel like acute sadness at what she's missing and like my children, her children getting bigger, things that are are happening. And also conversations. When the pandemic happened, I really wanted to talk to her about it because she would have had a really funny line on it as well. (laughs) And, you know, the sort of frustration about not being able to talk about talk about things and that is an ongoing sadness that you carry at the same time that you feel gratitude for the for the time that you do have because you say that there are times and I'm not sure if they still exist you go to message her you go to tell her about something and that's still there yeah and I did I said to Pete my husband actually the other day it was a Saturday afternoon I and I said I was just about to 
think, oh, should I just send Nell a message and we'll go and see her? Like, there's st- you still have it as a momentary, like, I'll go and see Nell. And then it's a sort of really horrible, crestfalling feeling. And when you've lost somebody, you are carrying that all the time. My, my dad says that he thinks about Nell every day and all the time in some way or another. And you are changed and there is a pain inside you, which you can't deny, you can't escape from. It is, it's, it's, you know, it's un, uncomfortable, mm-hmm. but with that discomfort, there exists something else at the same time. It's interesting. I, I feel like we've talked about the fact that it's not, um, this is how it began. This is the middle and, and this is the end. Mm. That makes the old sort of adage that time is the healer feel at odds with your experience if I'm in in a sense it's Mm. it's not that time was was what does any healing well I think there is a sense that you know the fact of the death is so big in, in the immediate time afterwards and I do feel that, that kind of awe, I've used this word a lot, but that that sense of awe of being there with death is as you feel it after birth as well. It's not something that you kind of just shrug off and move on, you know, it, it move on from quickly. It puts a massive imprint onto you. And then I suppose your own life kind of grows around it as well. And your own sense of other things happening. And I'm and I I think, I mean I really think that I have I'm very interested by creativity and how it is fed by traumatic loss as well, because the loss of my mother, I know, you know, as a teenager in a very traumatic way has informed the way that I write. And I really feel that my life now, I'm 40, I'll be 47 this year, that I'm going into a more deeply creative part of my life. And that has been inspired by so much of this loss that I've been through I suppose and that again feels a bit like one of these you know the little prizes I suppose have lost you know really really hard one but there is a time there is a time element but I suppose it's also how you kind of harness that time and what you do with it. Hey there I'm Dr. Maya Shunker and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Reluctantly, uh, there comes a time where I have to stop asking my own questions. I feel like I could ask them for hours. Um, I'm going to move to the audience questions now. And um, Karen, I've read your question in advance and I'm incredibly, you know, hugely sorry for the situation you're in, but I'll I'll read it out to to Clover. Um, Karen says, I'm in a situation where so many traumatic things are happening. Both healthy parents died from cancer within six months of each other five years ago. She was, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. My sister diagnosed with melanoma, two close friends with other cancers this year, and we are all in our early 50s or or younger. Like you were saying, too much trauma in such a short period of time. How do you deal with these type of situations and move forward, the too muchness of it, when your system can't deal with it anymore? Oh, Karen, I really, really, I mean, I really, really hear what you're saying, and I really, really sympathise, and I'm so sorry. And I come from a place of, of knowing 
what your experience is. And I won't say I cannot begin to understand what you're going through because I can understand it. And I hope that that feels like an appropriate thing to say. And I hope that feels helpful to you because you are not alone in it. And I didn't write about the fact that we had we had two other... Well, in 2017, two years after Nell had been diagnosed with cancer, um, my mum's sister, who was a very, very alive woman, was killed in a in a terrible accident on a quad bike that fell on top of her. And then my husband had a life-changing accident. And I do know, I really do know that feeling of there's there is too much and why is my plate so laden? And all I can say, I suppose, is that and a friend, I mean, I was talking to a friend about this who'd been through a lot, and she said kind of bowing down before it and and sort of giving yourself over to it because you want to fight it, you want to change things, you want, you know, it's so strong that desire to get back into the past or to change fate, and you can't. And the acceptance is 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 something that's very, very hard. But I do think that. I do think that a creative life, I do think that, or finding, you know, it may not be, and I only thought of myself as a creative person relatively recently, actually, but I think finding something that you really love doing, and that, you know, for me, that's writing, I don't know what you what you like to do, but it could be being outside in the countryside, it could be embroidery, it could be, um, you know, watching films with your friends but allowing yourself to go into that place as much as possible and find a kind of refuge there is really really important because what you're going through is is huge it's really 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 huge um but time also does when my aunt died and then Pete had this horrific accident and Nell was incredibly ill I just felt we're going to be in this sort of state of panic and and high alert and multiple accidents and multiple loss and terrible news and scans all the time. But then stuff does, you know, you do move forward and awful things happen. Nell died. Nell died. And, and and, you know, I am, I am okay as well. Life, life. And I'm sure that in the loss of your parents, there is a kind of acceptance for you a little bit further down the line. But I think that kind of sense of bowing down before it in some way or another and finding a place of refuge for yourself is really, really important. But I really, really do wish you so, so well. And um, for me, the answer to pain lies in reading poetry, continually reading poetry. That's the place I go to all the time. But which which, um, poetry do you find particularly, find solace in particularly? I read T.S. Eliot. I didn't read T- Eliot until I went to university and I don't really understand a lot of what he's writing about, but the, his words are so beautiful. And um, I read The Wasteland alive to, aloud to my children, uh, even when they're massively protesting about it, because it is like listening to incredibly beautiful music. There's a poem called The Journey of the Magi by T.S. Eliot, which is one of the most incredible bits of poetry that I've ever, ever read. Um, I also think, and maybe this would be useful for Karen as well, the Simon Armitage uh, translations of Gawain and the Green Knight and Beowulf um, and the Death of Arthur. And there is also a translation of Gilgamesh, which I can't remember who did it. It wasn't Simon Armitage. But the feeling that what we're going through, what you're going through, Karen, is things that people have gone through for you know, millennia for thousands of years is consoling. It is 
sort of beautiful and it is kind of reassuring and it also I suppose is part of that feeling of acceptance of it this is this is what happens in life and I'm I'm yeah I think those those old poems I really really love there are also those blood axe poetry anthologies called staying alive and being alive I think those are good and there's a Ella Risbridger did a anthology called I think it's called set me on fire poetry for every emotion and that's very very good too it's interesting you talk about consolation in those terms not very long ago actually we we spoke or I I spoke to Michael Ignatieff who's just written a book on consolation which is very much what you said about the the consolation that comes from reading all the people you know it's that it has happened to that it's gone before throughout the ages and that's actually um, I don't know if it would help help everyone, but it's a book that takes you from the biblical times all the way through poets and, and writers to wars to sort of hear of all the people that it's happened to before to find to find some solace in that. J- Jeremy says, my wonderful partner died from cancer at a relatively young age, while my mother, with whom I did not get on very well, died at the age of 92. I feel not just grief, but also anger mm-hmm. as I feel somewhat cheated life um, can be cruel yes I mean I have felt that so often why and and it kind of um it, it makes you feel horrible thinking it because you have kind of mean thoughts of why is that person and it's usually quite a you know specific person <laughs> that you don't you you would we would swap at any point for for uh, for you know your sister or your your partner and there is no there's no reason, you know, there's no rhyme or reason. We cannot understand that at all. It's beyond our understanding. And it's difficult. You know, it goes on being difficult. And I'm and I'm so sorry about that. And it is incredibly unfair, but it is the kind of nature of life. Life is so, you know, we see that around us. I think it's so clear at the moment from kind of world affairs, isn't it? The utter unfair wrongness of so much stuff that happens. And I don't have any answers for it except um, poetry, <laughs> really. Mm. You, you talk, um, you, you've mentioned this, of course, but you talk about, you've talked about pain, again, similar to, to something, you know, we, we've, been, we've discussed a few times in various other interviews as pain being something that, as difficult as it is, as it is to process, is perhaps just as important I mean you you write it again beautifully to see pain to feel pain to be present in pain and then to alchemize pain seems to me to be something deeply important for any human to learn to do in their life maybe it's the most important thing any of us can learn I must clarify those were Clover's words I I did not write them so beautifully as that and I just wondered if you could just describe that because it feels that's almost the essence of this book Mm. to, to be able to alchemize pain I know because we sort of go after happiness, don't we? We think that that's what we should be searching for and joy. And that's so elusive and so hard to find in so many ways. And as human beings, we are suffering so often and it doesn't have to be through the loss of somebody we love. You know, there are many different types of suffering. And I don't really understand why we, you know, I find it strange in with parenting, I suppose, why therefore we don't talk to children more about loss because it is absolutely going to be something that everybody experiences and that sense of I suppose not being afraid of pain or also or perhaps I mean it's impossible not to be afraid of pain I suppose but to kind of think of the 
the moments of loss or the moments of trauma, the moments of pain are not a sign that life has gone critically badly wrong. You know, they are just fundamental to life and that they are part of life. Because I think that when we start thinking, oh, that was the time when everything went wrong. and But that is, that's, that's part of what it means to be a human being. And one of the things I write about in the book is that I felt as though the more my kind of, the more I studied pain, I suppose, and studied loss, the better craftsman I would be in that alchemy. And it, yeah, it's just seemed it's it seems strange strange that we we think happiness should be the status quo, don't we? We think that kind of joy, and yet our experiences show us otherwise so often. And so the more that we look at that and examine that and and uh, create around that, I suppose the more beautiful and and satisfying and less intimidating the experience of of being human can be I should have asked you this at, at the beginning we, we moved on you, you you address the reader um quite a few times you know you talk very personally to the reader almost like we're sitting having a kind of a cup of tea with you and a biscuit mm. did, could you, did you see a reader in your mind's eye who, who, who is that person or that collection of people that you're talking to yeah, so for me, the relationship with the reader is really, really important. And I did want to, it to feel like an intimate relationship. Um, and, a, and an intimate, intimate is not a conversation, obviously, because it's one way, it's me speaking, but um, an intimate connection. And I didn't talk about, I didn't use my sister's name until a certain point in the book, yeah. because I didn't want somebody to think, oh, this is about Nell. Gifford who had a circus because the book is not about that at all and the book and she is she is elusive to me and she is elusive to the reader you know the reader I hope that what they experience is what I experienced was a sort of sense of her vanishing with the occasional you know tantalizing little glimpse of her and I really wanted anybody who picked up the book for it to be able to speak to them whether they'd lost their partner or their parents or a friend you know it wasn't specifically about a person and it wasn't specifically about a sister and I really you know it's a book where I really really open my heart and I really tell you my pain and my secrets and and there's a lot of intimacy in it and so that feeling that I am I'm connecting with you felt important and I hope that as you read that you feel as though you're kind of being brought in to a place and you are having an intimate conversation and I hope that as well the book creates you know I hope the book is helpful to people I really 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 hope that it is helpful to people and it and it does make them feel that well I was very interested I would after Nell died I just looked at people who had lost people that they love and I looked at my friends or I looked at you know celebrities I looked at I remember looking at Nigella Lawson and thinking she's lost her husband her mother her her sister how is she doing it what's she doing that's you know what is the place that she's got to what are are there some kind of tricks or are there some things that I can learn that she's doing and obviously as we've talked about there are no little tricks shortcuts (laughs) things that you should do which get you there uh, there is just a life to be lived. But I really, really hope that the book will offer consolation to people who are on that path or who are not on the path and, you know, curious about it, who who might be the person who says, I can't begin to imagine how you feel. I hope it will show people 
how you know their bereaved friend might feel and that intimacy with the reader hopefully kind of encourages that Oh, you definitely, yes, you definitely achieve that intimacy. You might be, want to be careful because other people, interviewers who you meet, they've read the book and they'll feel, you know, exactly like they know you so well. And I think like I, I did almost when we signed in, you, you feel in- instantly like you've known known you intimately and, and, and very well. And that helps, I, I'm sure, with the consolation, certainly. Um, sadly, uh, that's the place we're going to have to leave it. But I would just say that uh, someone in the audience, Indy, says thank you for sharing your experience and talking about this taboo subject. They really appreciated it. And um, Jeremy says thank you. Your story is so moving. I can certainly relate to it. Um, you know, grief remains with us, but it's obviously about about listening and, and, and talking about it more. Yeah. Thank you Talk- so much, Cobra, for, for joining us for the beautiful book, which I think a lot of people have have in store. And thank you, everyone, very much for signing in. Thank you very, very much. And thank you, you know, for for listeners. And I think what Jeremy has just said about having, you know, having the conversations and talking is so important. So the more that we can do this, the better. And this has been a, it's been a real joy. Thank you very, very much. This episode starred Clover Stroud and was presented by Hannah McInnes. The producer was Dana Outcult and the series is made by myself and Esme Bright with help from Nicole Wong. Our editor is John Doughty. Till next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>